Chuck Swindoll, in his book, Living Above the Level of Mediocrity, it's an old book now, very good book, tells a story about two young women from Southern California who spent the day doing some last-minute Christmas shopping in Tijuana, a Mexican border town several miles below San Diego. And after a successful day of bargain hunting, they returned to their car. One of the ladies glanced down in the gutter next to their car where they were parked and noticed something moving there and uh, sort of squirming as if it was in pain. As they bent down and looked closer, the two women saw what appeared to be a dog, a tiny chihuahua struggling for its life. It was breathing heavily. It was shivering. It was barely able to move. So their hearts went out to the pathetic little animal, and their compassion wouldn't let them drive off and leave it there to die. So they decided to take it home with them and to do their best to nurse it back to health. And afraid of being stopped and having a little creature detected by the border patrol, they carefully placed it on some papers among the packages in their trunk of their car. No problem. So within minutes, they were back in California and only a couple of hours from home. One of the women held the sick little chihuahua the rest of the way home. And as they pulled up in front of one gal's house, they decided that she would be the one to keep it through the night. Everything she could do to help it regain its strength. And so she tried feeding it food, but it wouldn't eat. She patted it. She cuddled it. She wrapped it up in a blanket and placed it in bed with her underneath the covers to sleep beside her all through the night. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? By early the next morning, she could see it was not doing well at all. And so before dawn, she decided to take it to the emergency animal clinic nearby and handing the weakened animal to the doctor on duty, she began to describe all the things she had done to help this tiny creature. He quickly interrupted her and said, where'd you get this animal? For fear of being reprimanded for being, bringing an animal across the border, she said that she was keeping it for a friend who had found it. And the vet said, I'm not letting you leave here until you tell me exactly where you got this thing. She said, we were shopping in Tijuana, found this little chihuahua in the gutter near our car. Our hearts went out to it when, and this is no chihuahua. You brought home a rabid Mexican river rat. <laughs> See, what appeared to be a pretty harmless thing to those two women, in reality, threatened their health and their lives. Chuck Swindoll's story really reminded me of the fact that the same is true in the church. A church that sows the wind will reap the whirlwind. And that is an apt description of what we uncover today through the churches at Pergamum and Thyatira in our study of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So if you'd like to turn to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at two churches today and... Judging from the picture behind me, there's some pretty serious things that Jesus says to these churches. So far, we've been looking into what Jesus has to say through these select churches of Asia Minor, and it's been clear that what makes a church great in heaven's eyes is determined specifically by Jesus Christ and Him alone. Amen? You've learned that so far? That's an important reminder to me, especially in light of the plethora of email I receive regarding the church every single day. Here are just a few examples that I received in the last two weeks. 
Five systems to grow your church. Number two, our newest ebook, How to Create Your Church's Growth and Legacy Plan. It's dramatically changed our church, said one person. Our giving has gone up 10 to 15% every single week. As if that was the criteria for planning your church's growth and legacy, that your giving goes up. Another one said, join, and it gives the name of the presenter, in New York City for the Stewardship Seminar and Evangelism Seminar. They will teach you how to reach more people for Christ and increase discipleship. Guess how? By creating generosity within your congregation. You're going to reach more people for Christ by creating generosity within your congregation. Both of these training events will help you grow your church and increase the effectiveness of your ministry. Different email said, here, here you can have four beginner tips to church branding. And the last one, download. Worship team development. Worship performance. Platform presence tips. Tips and ideas for making your worship performance inviting and effective both musically and visually. Everything from microphone etiquette, body placement and direction, looking good on camera, and recovering when things go wrong. We shake our heads, but every single one of us buy right into that stuff. Now, there's nothing wrong with helpful training events. I attend them. But I need to be reminded that the greatness of the church is ultimately determined by the head of the church. And to the faltering church at Pergamum, Jesus says this. Jesus says that a church that is great in heaven's eyes is not consumed by the world. Not consumed by the world. Look at verse 12, chapter 2 of Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says, says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, which no one knows but he who receives it. Ray Stedman offers this intriguing background on this city. He says, Pergamum was the Roman capital of the province of Asia, located about 50 miles north of Smyrna, the church that we looked at last week. It is called in this text, Where Satan Has His Throne. How would you like to have your city identified that way? 
i.e., the place where Satan rules. And it's also referred to as the city where Satan lives, where he has his headquarters. Many scholars think that refers to the great altar of Zeus, which was on the hillside overlooking the city. And you see the ruins of ancient Pergamum behind me. It was a great chair, this throne of Zeus, this altar of Zeus, 40 feet high, about 800 feet high on the top of this mountain where everybody could see from the town, from the city. And so any citizen could look up there at any time and see what Jesus called Satan's throne. This such, was such a center of pagan worship at the top of this mountain. It seemed to be the very center of evil. Now, there's a fascinating footnote of history in connection with this. In the 1880s, about 100-plus well, years ago, a German archaeologist working in the city of Pergamum removed this throne. He uncovered this archaeological, in this dig, uncovered Satan's, what was believed to be Satan's throne, the satanic seat from the hillside, and took it to Europe. They reassembled it in Europe, and today it is visible in the Pergamum Museum in the city, get this, of East Berlin. For more than 100 years, Satan's throne has been in East Berlin. If that has any connection with, to you, it might have a connection with the rise of Hitler and the Nazis. I leave you to judge that. But East Berlin is also where Hitler's headquarters were located. Interesting, there's all kinds of facts surrounding this, by the way. I'm not going to get into the details. But in the midst of a hideous environment, in the midst of this place called Satan's throne, this church of Pergamum had its share of attacks, as you can well imagine. Pergamum was a center of idolatrous worship to a host of false gods, including the big four, Asclepius, this was the god of medicine and healing, usually depicted as a bearded man accompanied by a snake wrapped around a staff. And by the way, the symbol of healing is still used today, the snake wrapped around the staff. John MacArthur writes that people would come from across the globe to be healed at this shrine, which swarmed, by the way, with non-poisonous snakes. Those seeking healing would sleep or they would lay down on the temple floor hoping that the snakes would crawl on them. You guys like that thought? <laughs> or be touched by one of these free-roaming snakes. This was part of their worship. Another god that had a temple there was Athena. She was the god of wisdom and the arts. Another one was Dionysus, a.k.a. the Roman god Bacchus, he was the god of wine and fertility, and worship of Bacchus included all kinds of drunken orgies. And then the ultimate one in which we call Satan's throne was the throne of Zeus, the temple of Zeus, the ruler of the heavens and presiding god of the Greek pantheon. Not only that, but there were temples to Augustus and Trajan, they also attempt, uh, erected temples for the worship of deified Caesars, such as themselves, within that city. 
making Pergamum the center of the imperial cult in Roman Asia. The picture that you see behind me is basically a computer-generated idea of what that hillside was in its day, all of those pagan temples. In addition, it was also renowned for its university with a library, get this now, in the first century, of 200,000 volumes of books. And for its manufacturing of writing parchment. High value, then, was placed in this city on knowledge and education. So let me give you kind of a little bit of a comparison here. If Ephesus that we looked at first was considered the New York City of Asia Minor. Pergamum was Washington, D.C. As a center of government, culture, learning, and religion, Pergamum is a picture of the world system. Okay? Following me so far? Worldliness at its best in Pergamum. So in the midst of Satan's alluring but empty promises of perfect knowledge, perfect health, perfect pleasure, and perfect power, Jesus commends this church at Pergamum for its ability to remain loyal to his person and faithful to his principles. Look at verse 13 again. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. See, within this church, even in the midst of all of this, there were people that held fast to Christ's name, people that were even martyred for his name, and yet there were people that had begun to compromise with the culture. They began to take on the colors of their environment, condoning idolatry, immorality, and infidelity within the fellowship. Jesus minced no words in pointing out that they were not to be misled by the compromising relationship that, they, that some of them had with the world system around them. In so many words, Jesus gave them a serious caution, and this is what he said. Don't rely on the world's so-called wisdom. Don't be snared by the world's worship practices and do not adopt the world's wickedness. Specifically, Jesus mentions two very predominant examples that had infiltrated their fellowship. Look at verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. Because there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam. And then in verse 15, you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what is this teaching of Balaam? Well, let me sum it up for you. It was the love of money, it was covetousness, it involved immorality, and it involved idolatry. That was all circling around the teaching of Balaam. If you remember, you can read about it in Numbers chapter 25 in the Old Testament. Balaam was a false prophet who had been hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse Israel. But when he tried to do that, he found that God would not let him curse them. And every time he tried to pronounce a curse on Israel, it came out a blessing, right? Isn't that great, the way God does that? God wouldn't let him curse his people. So, what Balaam did, 
He used beautiful Moabite women to lure the Israelites into the godless practices of the world around them involving sexual immorality and idolatry through intermarriage with them. And that's how he got to the nation of Israel. The counterpart that we face in our day today, you can just make your own application. But very clearly, it could be very easily applied to the widespread practice of pornography and fornication among Christians that's accepted, the acceptance of cohabitation and intermarriage between believers and non-believers. You can just keep on making the applications, and they are very apropos to what we're talking about here in Revelation chapter 2. So that's the teaching of Balaam. Teaching of the Nicolaitans, well, the name means conquerors of the people or the laity. Scholars have difficulty identifying exactly what this was, but most agree that at the very least, it involved an abuse of power, abuse of Christian liberty, resulting in licentiousness and other sinful and immoral behaviors similar to those who followed the teachings of Balaam. Now, the fact that some of these church members had embraced the doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans illustrates to us just how easily Satan can infiltrate the church with worldly practices that God absolutely hates. You know how easy it is? Practices that will crumble the church from the inside out. Simply put, we are to avoid, Jesus says, the practices which open the doors to compromise, corruption, and control. This is the unholy trinity of sex, money, and power. What do you find in the church today when a pastor falls? or a church ministry gets exposed. It usually involves one of those three things, doesn't it? Sex, money, and power. It's no different from the world, is it? This is where it gets really personal. Even now, many in the contemporary church, despite the tragic examples of Israel's downward slide away from devotion to God and the rebuke given to this church of Pergamum, there are still those who believe that they can participate in the pagan practices of the world and simultaneously worship Jesus in the Christian church and get away with it. And we do. Maybe you can make application for yourself. Sometimes we rationalize our involvement in these kinds of practices because we don't want to believe that they resemble the things of the church in Jesus' day. A healthy church is wary of those things which defile God's people and deny Christ's headship. Amen? It does not allow itself to be consumed by the world. That's the lesson about the church from the church of Pergamum. Chuck Colson says, only when the church transcends culture will it transform culture. And he's right. Listen to these words of truth. You can follow along with me if you want to turn there really quickly, but I'm just going to go through them. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says this, 
Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will know what God wants you to do, and you will know how good and pleasing and perfect His will really is. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John writes, stop loving this evil world and all that it offers you, for when you love the world, you show that you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only the lust for physical pleasure, the lust for everything we see, and pride in our possessions. These are not from the Father. They are from this evil world, and this world is fading away along with everything it craves. But if you do the will of God, you will live forever. James chapter 1, verse 4. Don't you realize, James says, that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you will make yourself an enemy of God. Now, let me explain what he's saying here. Does that mean you can't have unbelieving friends in the world? Absolutely not. That would go exactly against what preaching the gospel is all about and what Jesus says. When James says, don't be friends with the world because you'll be an enemy with God, don't adopt the world system practices, is what he's saying. Don't cozy up to them thinking that it's going to make your life better. Because it's not. You're going to be found at odds and in opposition with the way God wants you to live, which is vastly counter to what the world system says. You see, there's only one way to keep oneself unstained and unconsumed by the world, and it's this. Remain true to Christ and his word. In other words, stick to the truth, stay close to Jesus. That's something that you can remember, right? Stick to the truth, stay close to Jesus. Say it with me. Stick to the truth, stay close to Jesus. Now, if you operate your life that way this week, I guarantee you things will change for you. It might get worse as far as how other people treat you. but you'll be honoring God. Stick to the truth. Stay close to Jesus. You know why? Because error increases with distance. The further you get away from Christ, the more apt you are to fall into error. Amen? Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent, Jesus says, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. What's the optimum word here in verse 16? Repent. You notice that that's a recurring thing in these churches? Notice how we never preach that anymore very often? Repent of what? All of what he's just said. Marrying yourself to the world system, thinking that it's going to get you ahead. It's interesting that he says here, I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. I think there's a real interesting reason why John said this or why Jesus told John to write this. The governor, the proconsul of Asia, actually resided at Pergamum. And he was viewed as the official champion of both justice and the imperial cult. And as such, he held what is called the Ius Gladii, Glady, 
which is the right of the sword. Anybody ever heard of it? The right of the sword. And he could execute anyone as he willed. When an emperor permitted a governor to wear this sword, this Roman proconsul could execute anyone who disobeyed his orders. This deadly and powerful right of the sword commanded the obedience of the Pergamene citizens. Capital punishment cases, by the way, did not have to be referred to Rome. The proconsul at Pergamum could decide on the spot who lived and who died. As someone wrote, the proconsul's right of the sword confused loyalties. If a guy could kill you for crossing him, it demanded respect and obedience from all citizens. What do you think? This became a real problem when the Roman way conflicted with Jesus' way, didn't it? And a Christian was in constant danger in Pergamum of being put to death for disobeying the Roman way. Despite the persecution, however, here, this church held fast to Christ, Jesus said, even when faithful leaders such as Antipas were put to death. Obviously, the right of the sword was invoked on Antipas because he would not choose the Roman way over Jesus' way. Tradition says that Antipas was roasted to death in the belly of a brass bull during one of Diocletian's persecutions. His faithful witness was a rebuke to those in this church who were tempted to compromise with the world. It's interesting that none of the messages to the other six churches in Revelation 2 and 3, none of them mention the sword, only this one. But for Pergamum, Jesus identified himself in a manner that reminds them that it is he alone who decides who lives and who dies. Jesus absolute right to wield this sword demands our ultimate loyalty and obedience. Amen? Look at what it says in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the what? Sharp, two-edged sword. Verse 16. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the what? Sword of my mouth. Back up to chapter 1 and look at verse 16 there where Jesus presents, where we find who Jesus was as John saw him. Verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came what? A sharp two-edged sword. You see, the Christians at Pergamum needed to be reminded, as we also need to be reminded, that what we see with our eyes is not the only reality in our world. Is that right? The proconsul's Ius Gladii was a wet paper knife compared to Christ's two-edged sword. It is Jesus and the double-edged sword of his word that will judge, and comp judge compromise and corruption, not only in the world, but in the church as well. Amen? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's what the Word of God is. 
It is both faith-empowering, but it's also soul-exposing, isn't it? For us as Christ followers to hear and embrace Jesus' words in this text when he says that I will come against them with the sword of my mouth. He's talking about people in the church that have adopted those teachings. Describing Christ at his second coming, John writes in Revelation 19, verse 15, that from his mouth comes a two-edged sword which is able to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a, a rod of iron. He is the Christ, the absolute one, the absolute judge and the absolute truth who is worthy of our loyalty. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the church is to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but him who receives it. This hidden manna and the white stone, basically they symbolize all of the blessings and the benefits of knowing Jesus Christ, the bread of life. He is our provision. He is our promise. He is our point of entry, the white stone with our name on it. He is our point of entry into eternal life. And not just for us alone, but for everyone who puts their faith in him. So what do we find? What do we learn about the church at Pergamum? We find that a healthy church overcomes by remaining unstained and unconsumed by the world system. They are the ones that get the applause of heaven. There's another church here that even went further down the downward spiral. And that's the church at Thyatira, the next one. And Jesus says here that a church that is great in heaven's eyes is not just not consumed by the world, but it's not confused about the truth. Look at verses 18 and following. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts and will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you and the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. And I also have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." This false church at Thyatira says a lot to us. If the church at Pergamum 
was in danger of compromising with the world, the church at Thyatira had become completely immersed in it. They weren't just living with the world, they were married to the world. D.L. Moody once said, the place for the ship is in the sea, but God help the ship if the sea gets into it. This church had taken on some serious, serious water, and it was going down fast. The issue at Thyatira was not an external issue. The issue at Thyatira was an internal issue. This is the longest letter of the seven, and it was written to the church in the smallest city. Interesting. Want to know what the major problem was in Thyatira? I know it's a long letter. I'm going to sum it up for you really quickly. You know what the major problem was in Thyatira? You're going to laugh when you hear this word. Tolerance. Tolerance. They were tolerant of evil people. They were tolerant of false precepts, teachings, and they were tolerant of sinful practices. What does tolerance mean? Look it up in the dictionary. It's not just allowing something that you disagree with to go on. It's allowing something that you disagree with to go on and not speak out against it. That's what tolerance is, according to the dictionary definition. G.K. Chesterton once said that tolerance is the virtue of a people who don't believe in anything. In a large sense, that statement is very true, especially when it results in the overt suppression of truth and the abandonment of moral and scriptural convictions. Now, tell me that's not relevant to the church today. A segment of the church at Thyatira had done exactly that. Indulgent permissiveness colored the character of that church, and Jesus' stinging rebuke marks that church out as a model of spiritual sickness, not health. Thyatira was the epitome of an unhealthy church. It was the hothouse of heresy. Remember when I put up on the screen behind me a couple of weeks ago that trifold downward spiral? First it began like in Ephesus with cooling, and then it moved to compromise at Pergamum, and now it's corruption at Thyatira. And eventually, as we'll see later, it's going to be complete apostasy at Laodicea. It just keeps going down and down and down as people move away from Christ. In the midst of its problems, however, the Lord praised this church for its love, its faith, and service and perseverance, and that at least in recent times, some growth had occurred there in the church. Jesus saying, now this is church. You're doing the right things. But whatever growth had taken place, Jesus points out that it was about to be destroyed unless some serious repentance had taken place. Moral compromise, sexual corruption, spiritual defection, and satanic seduction were the benchmarks of the church at Thyatira. And in the midst of their toleration of all of this, Jesus reveals himself as the one who has no tolerance for the marriage of light and darkness. Whereas in chapter 1, verse 13, it says, he revealed himself as the Son of Man. Here, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God. 
And by the way, this is the only occurrence of this in the whole book of Revelation. He, he reveals himself as the Son of God with complete authority to judge everything that was going on. Look at verse 18. The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. He's coming to this church as the authoritative judge. That's scary. He says, by allowing this woman referred to as, a Jeze as Jezebel, probably not her real name, but because of her teaching and the way of her character, she resembled the Jezebel of the Old Testament, who was an evil woman. The most notorious female name in the whole Old Testament. By allowing this woman to seduce them into immorality and idolatry, the deep things of Satan as identified here, just as the Jezebel of the Old Testament did to Israel, and you can read about that in 1 Kings 16, the church at Thyatira brought the threat of swift judgment upon themselves if they continued to tolerate this evil teaching that was going on there. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, gives us this warning. I'm going to read it to you out of the message. Don't become partners with those who reject God. How can you make a partnership out of right and wrong? That's not partnership. That's war. Is light best friends with dark? Does Christ go strolling with the devil? Do trust and mistrust hold hands? Who would think of setting up pagan idols in God's holy temple? But that is exactly what we are, each of us a temple in whom God lives. God himself put it this way, I'll live in them, move into them, I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. So leave the corruption and compromise. Leave it for good, says God. Don't link up with those who will pollute you. I want you all to myself. I'll be a father to you, and you'll be sons and daughters to me. What's he saying here? You can't have God living in your life and worship at a pagan temple. And I don't mean literally pagan temple. It's interesting that out of the seven, this church at Thyatira is the only church commended for its love. You find that interesting? I do. There's no lack of love in this church. Yet at the same time, it was completely saturated with sin. You know what was in short supply? Truth. Truth. There was no lack of love, but there was a serious lack of truth. It's also interesting to me that Christ's words to the church at Ephesus were just the opposite of this. They were spot on doctrinally, and they ran false prophets out the door immediately. They could not tolerate them. They could not stand them. But you know what they lacked? They lacked love. What does that say to you? It says that, it says that in order for a church to get the applause of heaven, it must maintain a healthy balance of truth and love. You can't just emphasize one and neglect the other. 
That's why Paul wrote so candidly to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. He says, we will no longer be like children forever changing our minds about what we believe because someone has told us something different or because someone has cleverly lied to us and made the lie sound like the truth. Instead, we will hold to the truth in love, becoming more and more in every way like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Who loved more than Jesus? Who? Who loved more than Jesus? No one loved more than Jesus. But what was Jesus' identification? The way, the truth, and the life. Did he tolerate sin? He did not tolerate sin. Did he love people who were sinners? He absolutely loved them to the utmost. Gave his life for them on the cross. Truth and love. Truth and grace. An imbalance in either direction will polarize the church and paralyze its effect on the world around it. And you see it all the time. You see it all the time. Let me say this. God does not tolerate sin in an effort to prove his love. Let's say that again. God does not tolerate sin in an effort to prove his love. If he did, Christ would never have had to go to the cross and die for us in order for us to be forgiven. Christ will not smile upon a church that is engrossed in an affair with the world. Even though he loves the church, he hates spiritual adultery, and he will deal decisively with it. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I'm going to throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Make no mistake about it, folks. Jesus makes no excuse for being intolerant of sin, whether it's in our lives or in the church. He loves us enough to give up his life for us even when we were in our sin, but he despises the sin. He hates what it does to us because it hurts us. It destroys us. It annihilates us. He hates what it does to his bride and what it does to our relationship with him. That's why he gave this woman time to change. Christ had patience. Yes, Christ has patience, and it's a good thing because we'd all be lying on the floor, wouldn't we? He gives us time to change. But please, 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 friends, do not misread Christ's patience with people as a tolerance and acceptance of their sinful behavior because it's not. Just read Ezekiel chapter 18 this week, verses 30 through 32 specifically. When Jesus finally decides the time is up, it will be a rude awakening for every single person who has ignored Christ's call to repentance. It's going to be a rude awakening. Look at verse 22. Well, I just read it. Going to toss her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into tribulation. 
and I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Let me tell you, I can't stand here and see your hearts and your minds. I can't search you. My eyelids don't test the sons of men like the Psalms say God's does do. But this text right here is a very, very unnerving verse to me. I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. Whatever you're thinking right now, whatever you're feeling in your heart right now, and when you go into your dark closet at home, God sees it, he knows. There is no hiding from him. A healthy church, Jesus says, is to be in the world But when it begins to compromise the truth and starts to overlook sin, allowing it to actually thrive within its own walls and its own boundaries, its spiritual distinctiveness completely erodes. It is not the church anymore. When Jesus says deal with sin in the church, he means it because he knows what it can do. What appears to be harmless can prove, as in the opening story, to be very, very dangerous. And a perfect example of this is what happened to Israel when they entered the promised land surrounded by the spiritually and morally corrupt Canaanites. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. Listen to what God says when God gave them a very simple command, he says, drive them away from your homeland, which I have given you, because if you don't, they're going to come back to haunt you in the end. Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, verse 1, where you are entering to possess it and clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and they're all a bunch of termites because they erode the house from within, right? It's a way to remember that. Seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when your Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, show no favor to them, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons, what does it say? Away. Away from following me to serve other gods, and then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. You know what happened? Tolerance happened. Tolerance happened to Israel. Why? Because it was pragmatic, it was expedient for them to adopt the practices of the nations around them. Then they weren't odious to the nations around them anymore. They could be friends with them and they could enjoy all the blessings of whatever gods they worship would pour down upon those nations, right? What a sad, sad state of affairs. And we see it unfold, and you've heard me say this before, but I just want to quickly step you through it again in Judges, chapter 1, verse 21. The sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Look at verse 27. 
Manasseh did not take possession of Beth Shean and its villages. Okay? Didn't drive them out at the end of the verse. So the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. Verse 28. And when it came about that Israel became strong, that they put the Canaanites to forced labor. But they did not drive them out completely. 29. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living within Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. 30. Zebulun didn't drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. So they lived, the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Verse 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Hayab or Aksib or Helba or Afik or Rehob. So look at this now. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. You see the subtle shift? The Canaanites were not living among them anymore. Now they were living among the Canaanites. And every verse that follows after that says the same thing. Verse 33, you know, look at it. But it says, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. The Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country. Not only were they living among them, but now the Canaanites were forcing them out into the hill country so they could not have the land that God gave them. That's what happens when you adopt tolerance as your high value. And if you read down through Judges chapter 2, you find out that they began, well, just look at it here. See, it was one compromise, one concession after another until tolerance wasn't enough. Then it became complete acceptance and personal compliance. And that's where we are in our country. Sorry, that's the truth. This is where we are. And it's what exactly characterized the people of Israel. In Judges chapter 2, verse 11, look what it says. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And what did they serve? The Baals. Israel, the people of God, began to serve the pagan gods. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. They bowed themselves down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And then it says the anger of the Lord burned against them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Where are we, people? What will characterize you? What will characterize us as a church in the United States of America? Will we be described as the Israelites were? But I say to you, Jesus says to Thyatira, and the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching and have not known the deep things of Satan. I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Hold fast until I come. Healthy churches overcome by not being confused about the truth. They're not confused about it. They maintain a high standard of personal, doctrinal, and spiritual purity. 
Listen, a church that overcomes will hold fast until he comes. Amen? Let me just close. I got another email in my box some months ago that I tucked away in a file for just this occasion. I thought it was quite interesting. It's called, the church is called to be churchy, so deal with it. Interesting, huh? He says, bear with me. He says, I'm sitting in a donut shop. I've been here many times and nobody has ever complained about this place saying, this donut shop is too donutty. <laughs> it's a donut shop, so you expect it to be donutty, right? No one ever said that a sporting event was too sporty, a library too booky, a concert too musicy, and an airport too plainy, a home too homey, or a college too schooly, or a hospital too hospitally. Yet I hear it all the time. That church was too churchy. Well, what else should it be? Why the double standard? Why do we condemn the church for being about Jesus, about your soul, about God, about spirituality, about conviction of sin, about heaven, about hell, about salvation, righteousness, and judgment. We surely don't complain that a donut shop offers Boston cream, cinnamon buns, apple fritters, cream sticks, jelly-filled glazed, and blueberry cake, do we? Because some churches are listening to this sort of cultural critique, it's gotten ridiculous, he says. Since some churches actually believe that they should not be churchy, they tried to hide their spiritual donuts, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Participants can attend, be fairly comfortable and entertained without being confronted with too many spiritual matters. Then right at the end, a little Jesus is slipped in. But that's like going to a hospital only to have the doctors and nurses pal around with you, never addressing your physical condition. But right at the end, when you're about to go to your car, some nurse's aide slips a little medicine into your pocket with an apology. All this time you needed surgery and an IV, but they were afraid of offending you. They were afraid to tell you how sick you were. They didn't want to appear intolerant because they were the only ones in town with the cure. The church doesn't do anybody any favors when it refuses to be churchy. The church needs to be churchy, and it must stop apologizing for doing so. I will never convince you of the goodness of something so long as I hide it from you. If I want you to grasp the beauty of box, cello, suite number one, then I must play it for you. Church, he says, do not hide your scriptures. Don't hide your sacraments, your worship, your preaching, your service, or your call to repentance, your lament, your urgency, or your joy in Jesus. But what if non-Christians don't like us, I hear? Well, if someone doesn't like us, then that's no reason to change who you are. Now, if you're a jerk, then by all means, stop being a jerk, he says. But don't stop being the church. Those who don't like us must not dictate who we are. That's like allowing a blind man to lead a seeing man through the gauntlet. 
If the church really can see, then she must lead the way. She is to dictate the culture, not the reverse. She is to tell media what's cool, not the opposite. The church is to set trends, refusing to be a flea on the back of a dog who merely sucks life from another organism. Have you endured the cruelty of this world? Have you seen evil face to face? Are you aware of how dark life can get? Have you held a man in his brokenness, wiped the flood of tears from a tormented woman, looked into the hopeless eyes of a child? Stop messing around, he says, and get to Jesus as fast as possible. Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the cure. He's the feast. He's the joy. He's the solution. He's the meaning. He's the purpose. He's the hope. He's the life. He's the way. Yeah, he is. You see, to display Jesus is to be the church. To stand firm. Be churchy. Be Jesus-y. Be the light of the world. Because churches that are great in heaven's eyes are what Jesus truly wants and what the world desperately needs. And they are churches that are in love with Jesus. They maintain their first love. Churches that suffer well, they can weather the storms of life. Churches that are not consumed by the world, they're insulated, not isolated from it. And churches that are not confused about the truth, they honor it and they carefully deal with sin. They love the truth, they tell the truth, and they live the truth. In essence, there are churches that overcome. Repeatedly, at the end of these seven letters, Jesus issues the promise, the enduring promise, he who overcomes. He who overcomes. Notice it's not the church who overcomes. It's he who overcomes. A church that is an overcoming church is a great church. But you know what? Churches are made up of individual people. And the question is, are you one of them? Are you one of them? He who overcomes will hold fast until he comes.